You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Lucifer's Rebellion, Philip Edwards will expose the rebellious nature of our enemy Lucifer. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can register for future modules, study our past modules and also see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to uh, week two of Spiritual Conflict. We're going to be discussing tonight uh, Lucifer's Rebellion. So it sounds exciting in itself, but uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it as we uh, expose him really and uncover uh, the rebellion that he brought into the world. Let's just pray before we start then. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us continually every day of our lives. We thank you that you're here to expose uh, truth to us, to reveal it into our hearts, that we can serve you and love you better. Father, we just commit ourselves to you tonight, whether we're online or uh, in the classroom, and Lord, that you would touch our hearts and reveal truth to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I introduced uh, this subject by asking the question, why is this world that's created by a God of love so full of conflict and war? What's gone so terribly wrong? And we accept strife and conflict and war, although we hate it when we see it or we're involved in it, we just accept it as normal because it happens so regularly and all the time. We said that the root of the unrest and the conflict was all because of one thing, rebellion. And rebellion in the heart of man against God. I suggested that we were born into uh, a spiritual war zone. When you became a Christian, you didn't realise that you enlisted in an army. You didn't volunteer for that. You wanted to be saved and you wanted to be a Christian or you wanted to change or have this relationship with God. But you realised, oh, I've stepped into something I didn't realise perhaps I was stepping into. And I also said last week, as soldiers we're expected to take the battle to the enemy, to arm ourselves and to go forward as to wait. Alternative is we wait for the enemy to come to us and that's, that's never a good tactic. I did some boxing once and I was told, you get the first punch in and you're halfway there. I don't know if that's strictly true. I never did much of the thing, but, uh, and the, the one bout I did have, I lost. So um, it, it wasn't for me. Um, in the second lesson uh, that we considered, we looked at this thing called the gap theory. The, the gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and there could have been a vast expanse of time, and we know within this period of time, there was a, the, Satan fell, as it were, from his position. Uh, around the throne of God, he fell, and the earth was then destroyed or, or it was damaged, as it were, by Satan's fall. 
I want to read you again. I read something regarding the gap theory, just to remind you where we were last week. Uh, and and it'll, if you weren't here last week or you didn't hear this, uh, then it'll help you to understand this week's teaching. It's the gap theory or the ruin and reconstruction theory it's sometimes called. The world was made, something terrible happened to it, and God had to reconstruct it again. And this happens between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. Those verses state this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The gap theory is the view that God created a fully functional earth with all animals, including the dinosaurs and other creatures we know from the fossil record. Then something happened to destroy the earth completely, most likely the fall of Satan to earth, so that the planet became without form and void. At this point, God started all over again, recreating the earth... Uh, in its, uh, sorry, in its paradise form as further described in Genesis. Genesis 1.1 is seen as a summary of the complete chapter 1 in the Hebrew storytelling form. So we said it was like the headlines of a paper where the first paragraph tells you what the whole, whole article is about and then you read through for, for more details. It begins with detailed breakdown of the step-by-step -step process in verse 1 summarised. However, the statement that the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep, Genesis 1-2, can be puzzling. The idea that God created a useless and shapeless earth is an uncomfortable position to hold. Those who believe in the gap theory describe the original creation of God, perfect in every way, then between verses 1 and 2, Satan rebelled in heaven and was cast out. Satan's sin ruined the original creation, that is, his rebellion brought about its destruction. And the earth was reduced to its formless and empty state, ready for the reconstruction. The length of time involved, the size of the gap, is not specified but could have lasted for millions of years. Of course, Satan must have fallen before Adam did. There would have been no temptation in the garden otherwise. So that's just uh, by way of recap. Then I um, substantiated this theory from a whole number of scriptures. I presented them to you uh, to show you how I got to that conclusion. Okay, so we move on this evening to uh, lessons three and four. The rebellion of Lucifer or Lucifer's rebellion. Before we talk about uh, Lucifer and the rebellion that I believe, and I believe sub, uh, scripture substantiates this quite considerably, uh, before we look at that, I want us to talk about Jesus, God's son, and what we know about him before the creation of Adam's race. Where does Jesus first appear? In what form is he? Uh, was he there at the very beginning? What was he involved in before he came to earth? 
I have to lead you to a passage of scripture that I think describes this very well. It's in Proverbs chapter 8. The theme of this whole chapter, in fact, all those early chapters of uh, Proverbs, uh, the theme is, is wisdom. And, and this chapter 8, the theme of this is wisdom again. But as you read it, you'll see that the Bible here is referring to wisdom as a person. Uh, and it's really Jesus himself. It, it's, it's very strongly emphasised like that. So we'll have a look at that. Let me read these first few verses to you. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice on the heights along the way where the paths meet she takes her stand beside the gates leading into the city. At the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, gain understanding. Listen, for I have worthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks with, the tr with uh, what is true. For my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are faultless to those who have knowledge. Choose my instruction, he says, instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. And then if I jump down into verse 17, this verse sounds a little bit like something you've read in the New Testament. I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. You're thinking, is he talking about wisdom here? Or is he talking about the one who is wisdom? Is he talking about Jesus Christ himself? In 1 Corinthians 1 and 24, this is how the, the Bible here describes Jesus. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So if you're going to talk about wisdom, and this scripture is, you're actually talking about Jesus Christ himself. And as we read on a little bit later, you'll see, oh, this has got to be Jesus now. I see what you're driving at with all of this. The whole setting of Proverbs 8 is before the creation of the world. It's describing for us this person, the Messiah, Christ, before, before Adam's race was ever created. Let's read on a little bit more of this now. In verse 22... He says this about uh, Proverbs 8. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountain was settled in place, before the hills I was given birth. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. Jesus was born of God, but a long, long time ago, before there was anything 
Before the heavens were created, before the earth was created, Jesus was begotten by the Father. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there. Uh, I I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the earth, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the foundations of the deep, when he gave the seas its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then, I love these couple of verses, then I was the craftsman, At his side, I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. A beautiful picture. You see the Son and the Father, with the Holy Spirit, of course, working together, just creating the universe. Jesus there at the beginning, with the Father, born of the Father. All of creation was moving towards one supreme purpose. It says that in the last verse, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind. He was creating this universe, this world, to bring forth the pinnacle of their creation, which was mankind. He created everything, remember? And then he brought man forth. As I said, the pinnacle of his creation. Everything that was done by the Father and the Son was from eternity. It was done to make the earth a habitable place for the purpose of bringing Adam and its descendants into being. It was in the mind of God. You were in the mind of God. I was in the mind of God millions and millions of years ago. (laughs) We asked that question last week when it says in the beginning. What was the beginning? Have we got any good answers? No, 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 I didn't think so. Uh, It it would take a lot of thought and reading around and some deep, uh, uh, you know, just waiting on God, really. What is that all about? When, what are you talking about, God? When was the beginning? You don't even know. You, you never had a beginning. So what are you talking about? In this perfect world that the, the Trinity had created, something happened to require a divine intervention They had created this beautiful universe. And we don't know how long it took. We don't know how long the heavens were created with the angelic beings before God fashioned the earth. We don't know that. Uh, We don't know what happened. Of course, I suggested last week, were we the only creation that he made or were there other creations before us? We don't know that. This book is to do with Adam's race. We're Adam's race. And remember, I said we're very egotistical. We think that we're the centre of the universe and actually God didn't do anything before us. Uh, Well, you put yourself in the centre of the universe. You see, God is at the centre of the universe. We don't know what God did 
in those eons and eons of time before we came onto the scene. But something happened. Something awful happened that brought displeasure to God, that caused God to bring a judgment, as it were. He had to abandon his plan of what he wanted, what he was doing with his son. For possibly millions of years, the world that he made so perfectly would be void. It, it would be like flooded with water, like a frozen sphere in the universe. Darkness was everywhere because the sun was cut off from the earth. Remember the first thing he said when he came to recreate? He said, let there be light, as though it was there, covered, and he, he let it shine again on this frozen, frozen ball, as it were, in the universe, so he could recreate his earth. It was an empty wasteland. What caused God's judgment on this pre-Adamic earth? What had created that? What had happened? Well, it's what we're driving at. It's this rebellion that happened. This very serious evil thing called rebellion. Satan's rebellion. And we know that rebellion will always bring the judgment of God. Always. God can't say, oh, it doesn't matter. We'll brush that one under the carpet. God in his purity and holiness and righteousness, he can't do that. All rebellion has to be dealt with. And we know from our perspective how he dealt with our rebellion. He sent his son Jesus Christ to the cross to pay for our rebellion. He never brushed your rebellion under the carpet. He dealt with it. And because the price was paid, your rebellion has been dealt with. You're acceptable to him. And all the times that you might keep rebelling, that's dealt with as well because of the grace of God. See, rebellion was here long before Adam's race. I know Adam and Eve rebelled, but they were tempted by the, the one who was very good at rebelling. He got them to rebel. How subtle and crafty he was, but he was the root of it all. This is how the New Testament describes Jesus at the time before all this happened. Uh, in Colossians 1 and 15, it says this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It ties up with this, doesn't it, in Proverbs. He was the first. The firstborn over all creation or the firstborn before all creation, before anything ever was, there was Jesus, born before it all. Then all creation took place through him. It's, it, as you read this one in Proverbs, he's like a child like jumping around by his father as he's doing it, because as we read on, his father's doing it with him. His father, it's as though his father has the ideas and somehow between them, the son speaks out the ideas because he is the word. 
He speaks it out and then the spirit moves, creating the very things that Jesus says. A unity, a working together, the thought of the Father, the words of the Son, the activity of the Spirit. Isn't that what happens today in your life? God thinks, Jesus speaks, and the Holy Spirit moves. It says in John 1 and 3, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You see, he was there doing it, making it, creating it. Anything that happened that's important in the scriptures, you'll see the Father, the Son and the Spirit there. At the birth of Jesus, they're there. At creation, they were there. At the cross, they were there. They were there all the time. You can't separate them working together. It goes on to say, Colossians uh, 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. It was created for him. We exist for him. That's the only reason you're here, living, breathing, moving. It's for him. He created it for himself. He created us for himself. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We know that from Hebrews, don't we, as well. He holds everything together. Jesus eternally existed before all things. It creates a problem for us, doesn't it? Born of God, yet eternally existed. It's difficult, isn't it? But lots of this stuff is difficult. Somehow we've got to hold all these loose ends together as we read them and thinking, well, one day uh, when God has done something to me, I'll be able to understand it. But until that day comes, I've just got to read the words and just hold all the loose ends Jesus always was, yet he came forth from his Father. I sort of, in my mind, see them always there, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, always there in eternity, and then something happened that Christ came forth, his Son came forth. I don't know what that means. I mean... The father never gave birth to him, and yet it calls him the only begotten, which means born of. So it's a mystery to us, but somehow it came forth. The scripture tells us that he chose you before the creation of the world. He predestined you to be adopted as his child before he even made the world, just as Jesus was with the father, it says, you were created before that. What does that mean? Does that mean you were just in his mind? Or does it mean something more? Have you existed for eternity? Oh, who knows? You go, oh, calm down, Philip. Just get back to the word of God here. You, go, you, live in, you see, it, what does that mean? 
what does that mean? If Jesus <laughs> lived in eternity and God gave birth to him, that's confusing enough. But now we were somehow with God before the foundation of the earth. We don't know, do we? Don't know quite what it means. There's going to be a lot of explaining going on one day. Maybe you'll say, I don't care, it doesn't matter, I'm here now, that's all that matters. But I'm going to have, well, I thought I would never have any questions. I think the more I study God's word, I think I will have a, a list of questions. Just explain this one to me, because I might just know it. I supernaturally might just know it. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That wound them up, didn't it? What's he saying? I was here, he says, at the beginning of creation with my father. Wow, you can't take that. Uh, you see, you can't, you can't defame God. That's what the Jews were thinking, to just human existence. They had a, an exalted vision of God, you see, the Jewish people, they did. And for a man to say, well, I was God, it's like, you can understand they got really angry with him. That's blasphemy. He deserved, in their minds, to be put to death. So don't be too hard on the Jews when they, because they want God, you see. They love God. They can't allow this thing to go on. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. And I said that verse in Hebrews 1 and 3. He holds the universe together. Who holds it together? Jesus holds it together. His words... Hold the universe together. His words hold your life together. You breathe every day. You get up every day. You live every day because the word of God holds it all together. It's amazing. We're given a picture of the heavenly creation there in that uh, Colossian verse, uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. We're given a picture of heavenly creation it says that Jesus created the invisible world and the visible world. There's a whole world that's invisible. It's invisible to us, but it's real. In some ways, it's more real than this world because this world was a copy of the real world. The trouble is we can't see that world because, because we can only see the things in the visible world. But when we're given our new bodies, we will see the invisible world. And we will see that this is a copy of that. Remember when he gave Moses the description for the tabernacle? He says, build it like this. What was he copying? He was copying what existed in heaven. And so he says, you make it exactly like this. So as he stood in the presence of God, he saw these things. Remember when he made the ark and the mercy seat where the presence of God was, as the Shekinah glory of God, and the two cherubim either side, remember, they just hovered over it. Where did he see that? He saw it up there. He saw it in the invisible. He saw the throne of God and he saw the cherubim too. It should have been three. But someone had rebelled and the three weren't there anymore. Just the two. So we see the two cherubim above the ark because that's what Moses saw. 
He saw everything. He saw it all. He saw the basin. He saw the altar. He saw it all because he had eyes to see it. One day we'll see the real world. Not this one. This is a copy of the real one. The invisible world has a hierarchy. It has an order. He speaks here about thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. It's a structure. We're, we're used to that, aren't we? In our own structures, we think well, there's the queen. Technically, she's above everything, isn't she? And then there's the parliament that's above it. And then we think of maybe the armed forces or the police. And we got civilization, and here we are. There's order and structure to all of these things. Throne. The thrones he talks about. I think at the top must be the throne of God. And then he talks about powers. I tried to find out what powers were. I found that nobody agreed on what it was. Someone suggested in Revelation in 4 and 4, you read about the 4 and 20 thrones that are around God. Were they the powers? There's the throne and the thrones. And then the rulers, I got some agreement on the rulers, probably the ruling angels or the angel princes were the rulers and the authorities were the angels. God's hierarchical structure in heaven. When rebellion broke out in the universe because of Lucifer and what he did, it broke out not in thrones or powers, but only in rulers and authorities. It was amongst the rulers that there was a rebellion. The heavens and the powers were never touched. God lives in the heaven of heavens. But we know that Satan was cast out. He's not in our heaven, the skies. We could say this is our heaven, but he's above this in the second heaven. But God is in the heaven of heavens. Scripture presents three great angel princes, rulers, archangels, we could call them. One is called Lucifer. His name means the light bringer. Before he fell, his name was Lucifer. Lucifer was good, shining, bright, powerful, the shining one. Isaiah 14 and 12 speaks about him. How you have fallen from heaven. He's called, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. As the sun rises, that was the name given to Lucifer. The bright, brilliant sunshine rising up. Gabriel. That was the second uh, angel prince, as it were. In the name means God is mighty. He's the heavenly messenger. Remember, he's the one who came to Daniel. He's the one who came to Joseph. He was the... When messengers had to be sent by God and they were life-changing, I mean, world-changing messages, he sent Gabriel. It says, Daniel 8 and 16, And I heard a man's, vo a man's voice from the Ulia River calling Gabriel 
Tell this man the meaning of the vision. Daniel 9 and 21. When I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He turned up again. Luke 1 and 19. The angel answered, this is to Joseph, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. Again, Luke 1 and 19. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And the third uh, angel prince that we have is Michael. And that means who is like God. He is the leader of God's army. He leads the heavenly forces. Wow, what does he look like? My Lord, Daniel 10 and 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, he came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Remember, Daniel was praying and the angel is sent uh, from God to, to bring a message. And this other angel in the, in the heavens, he resists God's messenger and he deters him from coming. And then God has to send Michael to sort things out. You send the man from the top to work it out. Send this one. And of course, he, he breaks through. He, he does, and he says, I must go back. And I'm sure Angel Michael was looking again in Daniel 10 and 21. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in Daniel 12 and 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protected your people, he will rise. It appears that Michael also had something to do with the body of Moses. Remember, uh, he, he died, I believe he died. Uh, although he was sort of taken away. They never buried him. But it says this in Jude 9, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Why was that? Because they had equal authority, you see. Even though Lucifer had fallen, there was a hierarchical structure. He couldn't curse him or anything. He brought a, an accusation against him. So he said, the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. I haven't got the authority to do that. I don't know where that puts us, rebuking angels and things. Are we higher than them? Have we been exalted to the right hand of God and given authority so we can speak against these fallen angels? I'll leave that one with you to work out and ponder that one on your own. And we read about him again in Revelation, Revelation 12 and 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. This is a future prophetic word. Battles in the heavenlies, which is the real world, outplayed down here in this world. Interesting. Michael then. Michael and his, his angels. You mean he had his own angels 
Well, there were three archangels, and we know that a third of them fell with Satan. So we could say, well, perhaps the three angels were the three, or archangels rather, were the three princes that operated under each member of the Trinity. That God had his angels, Christ had his angels, and the Holy Spirit had his angels. And the captain of these three groups were these three archangels. I don't know. Jesus referred to my father's angels. Remember? And also Jesus referred to my angels. Each group having its own leader, its own prince, Lucifer, Gabriel and Michael. Each group at the disposal of each member of the Godhead. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? He could have called 10,000 of his angels and they would have come without a shadow of a doubt because they were his angels. Why did God create Satan? Would that be an awful thing if he had done that? If God had done something so terrible, we might not have trusted him, you understand? But he never did, did he? He didn't create Satan. He created Lucifer, one of the princes. Lucifer became Satan through one simple act, rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion cut him off from God. Just God couldn't, couldn't handle or deal with that. He couldn't. And when Adam and Eve rebelled, they couldn't live in his presence anymore. See how serious rebellion is. When God said something is a word, and you say, I'll think about it, that's rebellion. When you say yes and you may no, that's what we call sweet rebellion, but it's still rebellion. We have to be careful that we're not like our father, a rebel. Jesus said he was a rebel from the beginning. Rebellion was found in his heart. What does Satan, the name mean? It means the adversary, the resister of the things of God. Eve resisted the things of God. Zechariah gives us a lovely illustration of uh, the resistor. It's in Zechariah in chapter 3. He gets a vision, as it were. It's almost like a court scene. He said, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. It's like in court. There is, there is God, and there's Joshua who is being accused. Of course, he has a defence, and then he has the one who comes to accuse him. And Satan is the accuser. But then there is a defence as well. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Could that be the Lord Jesus? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord 
who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you? Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. It sounds like the prodigal son, doesn't it, coming home? It sounds like what he did to you. He took those filthy clothes off you. As the accuser says, I've got this one. He says, no, take off those filthy clothes and put garments of righteousness on that person. Then I said, put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the angel of the Lord stood by. When you stand up to do something for God, the one who opposes us is right there, always there. As soon as you think about doing it, the voice comes, it's going to cost you time and money and effort and energy. Just, it's not God speaking, just, just don't bother with that, just, just don't do that. He's there. When you seek to do something for him, he will speak out. That's his job. When you seek God, you're likely to have him there, accusing you, condemning you, discouraging you, holding you down. Remember we said last week, we wrestle not. He just wants to pin you down so you don't do it. That's all, just to stop you. That's enough. He's resisting, you see. He's lost you. He knows he's lost you for eternity. But if he can stop you, he'll stop you all the time. Resisting us in what God has called us to do. Satan is the resister. It says in Revelations 12, 3 and 4, Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. This was all going on before Adam ever appeared on the scene. This was what was happening. It's an allegorical picture. Satan's not a dragon. He hasn't got horns and heads, not at all. But you shouldn't mix allegory with reality. This is reality. His tail sweeps all of the angels. How did he deceive all of his angels to fall with him? They had a freedom to choose. It looks like every person, angel, being that God has created, he has created them with choice. See, he's good, isn't he? He's good at what he does. He is a prince, a ruling prince. He covered the very throne of God. He is smart. Don't deceive yourself. He brings these fallen angels down with him. A third of the angels come with him. They're at his disposal. After the break, we're going to look at Lucifer's rebellion and how it worked out. Thank you. We're going to look at now the, the probable outline of 
Lucifer's Rebellion. I say probable. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I pick my words carefully because we don't know definitely. Uh, we're dealing in an area that is pre-Adam. And so scripture is uh, a little bit light on it, really. So we try and put the picture together. In the pre-Adamic period, heaven and earth alike were perfect uh, from creation onwards. As soon as the Father and the Son and the Spirit had created all the universe and the, the heavens and the earth, it was moving on in perfection. It seems that God committed to Lucifer uh, a certain realm of authority. It appears that the earth come under his authority. Was the earth empty at that time when uh, Satan was given authority over it? Or was there a race of people living on it before Adam's race? We don't know. We choose to make decisions about things we don't know and we move forward with that. There was, appears to be a pre-Adamic Garden of Eden and it says that he walked around in this garden. Some would suggest that this garden was in heaven. That was the Garden of Eden. Remember I said this is the real world and this is a copy of it. So when scripture talks about uh, Lucifer moving around in the garden, is that the garden on earth or the garden in heaven? See, I've got more questions than answers. I'm sorry, uh, but you have to come to your own conclusions about these things. We read there was a temple. There was a mountain. We read about these things. We'll turn to these verses of scripture later so I can show you where they are and substantiate these things. Were they in heaven or were they on the earth? If they were on the earth, then there was life on the earth before Adam's race. If it was in heaven, then we can say, well, maybe there was no earth, uh, uh, life on earth before Adam. Lucifer was a guardian of the temple, it says, and he, di he directed worship to God. Again, was it here or was it there that he did that? Satan, it appears, on the earth today, he always uses religion as his main tool against God. He deceives people with religion. I mean, the mass, the mass religions of the world keep people away from Christianity, whatever it is, and it incorporates millions and millions of people who follow a religion. Who orchestrated that religion? Who designed it? Who is, who is the craftsman behind religions in the world to keep people away? And sometimes they're so close to Christianity, but they, they miss it, don't they? It's like doing good and uh, worshipping God because it's not the God of Jesus, it's another God. He's good at religion. Oh, I said he was clever. See, we mustn't, uh, mustn't mock him. We must be careful about our enemy. Be wise in dealing with him. I think he's good at organising religion and religious services. He loves it. He loves it if somehow, instead of worshipping the true God, we get lost in some sort of religious thing where we're missing God completely. 
Galatians 5 and 19, remember it gives us a list there of the acts of the sinful nature. The two of them are idolatry and witchcraft. Well, they're spiritual things, aren't they? They're used in worship. Idolatry and witchcraft is used in religion. And it is a sin of the flesh. Crafty. And in Hebrews 6 and 2, remember it says that we are to uh, repent from acts that lead to death. Uh, or sins that lead to death, sorry. And the sins it's talking about are useless rituals. So he's talking to Jewish people and he's saying, listen, don't get involved in rituals that don't produce life. And he was talking to the Jewish people and saying, listen, don't go back to blood sacrifices. Don't go back to a priesthood. Don't go back to temple worship because he said, we're free of that. If you, if you enter into these rituals, and of course that's what the enemy wants you to do, get back into religious rituals, it will just confuse you and you'll not be worshipping God at all. He's, his job before he fell was to organise worship. I think he organised worship in heaven. I do. That was his job. All the angels worship God. Holy, holy, holy. And that was his job. Because I believe in a pre-Adamic race, I believe he had authority in the earth and he organised worship on earth to God as well. In the temple of God on earth, he organised this worship. I want to read to you the account of his fall rather than uh, teach it and then I'll teach a little bit and then come back. Lucifer, says this, became proud of his own wisdom and his own beauty and he aspired to a position of equality with God. I'm glad I'm not that attractive. <laughs> and if you're a lady and you wanted to be more and more beautiful. Now, <laughs> the fact that you might consider yourself a little plain, and I don't want to insult anyone here, please listen to me. Uh, but you see the problem it was for him. It was his beauty. He was made so beautiful. It says it was his downfall. He, he wanted equality with God. Uh, probably this was the position occupied by his son. So his son has equality with God. He wanted the equality with God. See, he hated Jesus. And do you know where you sit this evening? In heavenly places with Christ on his throne. You see why he hates you? You've got the place that he always wanted. How about that? You are not his favourite. Now, if you're going to get beaten up by the enemy, you need to know what you're getting beaten up for. It's because you're sitting in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You're in a place of authority. You're in a place where Satan wanted to be. And everything he did, he didn't do it. But you did nothing and got there. You simply put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you were elevated to sit with Christ on the right hand of God. Lucifer 
systematically promoted rebellion and seduction and seduced the angels under his charge from their loyalty to God and then he led them in an assault upon God's throne. For this he and his angels were cast down from the heavens of God's dwelling. That is probably the heaven of heavens. They then set up a rival kingdom in opposition to God, situated in the heavenlies. That is between God's dwelling, the heaven of heavens, and the atmosphere, our heaven. So above our heaven, there's a heaven where Satan is. Satan is in the heavens, ruling over the earth. He is the prince of the air. In Luke 10, we read the account of where Jesus sends the 72 out, remember, and they uh, exercise authority over demons and they come back rejoicing because they had never seen an ordinary person. Maybe they had seen Jesus cast demons out or even the apostles cast demons out, but these were the 72 disciples and they thought, well, it's, it's for special people. And yet they found that they could cast demons out and they were just overwhelmed at the very thought. Luke 10, 17 and 18 says this, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I believe this is when he saw it. When Satan led the rebellion against God in heaven with the angels, he was cast out and thrown down unto the earth. And we know a third of the angels came down with him. I believe Jesus was referring to this event. In Job 1 and 6 it says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. I've wondered about that conference in heaven. Uh, these angels coming and all presenting themselves. Did they not know that he was fallen? Did he disguise himself and come to that meeting? So they wouldn't know who he was. We see we don't know these things. As you read them slowly and meditate on them, you go, oh, I wonder what this was all about. He's like eavesdropping on a conference between God and his ruling angels. Mm. Ephesians 2 and 2 says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, talking about Satan himself, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient the ruler, the prince who is in the air. At some point, Satan and his rebellious angels caused the, in the inhabitants of earth to join them in their rebellion and in every form of wickedness. Probably all of this went on for a long time because God is amazingly long-suffering. So Satan leads this rebellion and these angels fall with him to the earth and God tries to redeem things. You've got to believe that because it's in the nature and character of God. God has always been amazingly patient and gracious and would he have saved and redeemed them? One would think probably if he could, if they would respond to him. And if there was a pre-Adamic race, now these fallen angels had come and they were in rebellion against God. They had stormed, as it were, the very throne of God and been cast out of heaven. Now they're working in the earth. They are now seducing everyone. Once he led them in worship to God, but now he says, 
things have changed, you worship me. And so he seduces them. And maybe God sends overtures to the earth. Maybe he sends angels to speak to the fallen angels to tell them, just you can come back. But they don't. God probably made offers of mercy and forgiveness to the whole pre-Adamic organised system of rebellion to the angels and to the other persons involved. Apparently none were willing to avail themselves of the mercy offered. Ultimately God brought a tremendous judgement, mainly water, upon the whole earth and its inhabitants. The result is what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. God's judgment then on this fallen race, on this earth that he had created, these fallen angels. Where are the angels? What had he done with them? They were bound somewhere. Or were they free in the heavens to move around? They were free, it appears. Because when God recreates, reconstructs the earth, we find that Satan has the liberty and freedom to come and visit it again. Mm. Mythology, and you can't pin everything on mythology, but not all mythology is nonsense. There is bits of truth in it. It is, it is the history that people have written down, not only Greek mythology, but Chinese mythology and all sorts of mythology. As it's written down, a lot of it is, but there is like stories, I understand that, but there's truth in these things. They've been recorded. Do you remember watching the film, if you went to see it, it made Christians very angry, uh, Noah. Did you see the film, the, the production of the film Noah? People got very angry because it was not like the Bible story of Noah. Uh, in fact, some of it was and some of it wasn't. That's a bit like mythology. Bits of it were true and bits of it were definitely not true, but of course what they had done in making the film, they got all other bits of mythology and put it in there as well. So, and they said at the beginning, they didn't say this is the Bible's version, they said this is mythology. We have created it and so uh, and, uh, artistic license as well. But there are bits of truth in that. Mythology contains many references to a so-called golden age, which would be the pre-Adamic age. The earth just brought forth, and you just ate and drank and enjoyed yourself. Greek mythology abounds with references to this period. It also makes references to a whole continent submerged between, uh, sorry, beneath the Atlantic. Atlantis. Isn't it interesting? A hole, and it's deep, deep down. The abyss is the very depths of the sea. Very interesting, this stuff, as we look at all these different myths that are around. Plato refers to this in his writings. This may be the origin of the abyss. Where we read the word pit in scripture, it should be the abyss. It suggests a tremendous depth of water and you will find it in the ministry of Jesus. Many demons said, do not send us into the abyss. Send us anywhere else, but not into the abyss. Isn't that interesting? They had been sent somewhere, 
the depths of somewhere and covered with water. And we know at the end times, a door will be opened and more demons will come out of the abyss to do what the enemy is allowed to do in the end times. It's a place of imprisonment. It's pending judgment for a whole civilization or more than a civilization. All of mythology may not be correct, but it contains fragments of truth. The same myths are found in other civilizations that cannot be tracked back to Greece. The disembodied spirits of a pre-Adamic race or races probably constitute evil spirits, demons of the present age. I want to turn you now to a scripture uh, where we glean a lot of these things that I've been suggesting to you. It's in Ezekiel and chapter 28. It deals with a city called Tyre, which was one of the, uh, it was a commercial city, a maritime city of the ancient world. So it's a real place and it had a, a real king and so forth. And so Ezekiel is prophesying about this place. They have, uh, as we read it, we'll see there are two completely different personalities that he's talking about in this prophecy. He talks about the ruler of Tyre, who is a man, he's a king, and he talks about the king of Tyre, who is an angelic being. Undoubtedly, we'll see that it's Satan himself. So if you have your Bible, it'd be good to just turn to it. This is Ezekiel chapter 28. We're going to divide it into two studies, really. The first one deals with the ruler of Tyre, a man, the, the king, and the second one uh, deals with uh, the, the king of Tyre, who is an angelic being. In the first prophecy, what really it's doing, uh, it's the clearest preview of Antichrist. So we're going to see that the prophet here is talking about, even for us, a future event. But then when he gets to the second half of the chapter, he's talking about a previous event. Scripture's very confusing, is it? I'm sorry about that, but that's just the way it is. And it takes a lot of digging sometimes to, to, to work this stuff out. So the first 10 verses of this chapter are of a future event for us. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So the ruler is the king. So it's actually a person in history and he says, say this to him because this person is a preview, a representative of the Antichrist. We'll find this as we read him. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. We know that some of the ancient rulers were like that. Nebuchadnezzar was like that, didn't he? I'm God. Well, God said, well, I'll just put you in a field for seven years to eat the grass and feathers grow out your head and all that sort of stuff. I mean, so, so these, these despots really actually thought they were. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. That phrase, the heart of the seas, means in the masses of the people. 
a powerful, powerful person. But you are a man and not a god, though you think you are wise as a god. Remember who we're talking about? We're talking about this man in history, but also we're talking about Antichrist at the same time. You'll see how this picture of this man is a preview of Antichrist. Here is a man who thinks he is a god. His pride has lifted him up to this position. Verse 3, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you, is the question. Antichrist will have supernatural wisdom, we're told, given to him directly by Satan. That's how he rises to a place of world fame. He comes with the solutions to the world's problems. This is what we want, isn't it? We want leaders, statesmen, powerful people that will sort things out, have the wisdom and the ability and the strength, and the, we almost want supernatural people. And we see people mumbling along, really, as leaders. We want statesmen. Well, be careful, because Antichrist will be a statesman, a powerful, powerful person. Verse 4 goes on to say, By your wisdom and understanding you have gained wealth for yourself and you've massed gold and silver in your treasuries. This will be what the Antichrist is like. Powerful wealth. He will just be just thought of so powerful by everyone in the world. He will have tremendous material wealth. Then verse 5 and 9. By your great skill and trading, you have increased your wealth, he says, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their sword against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendour. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas, in the masses of the people. Will you then say, I am a God? In the presence of those who kill you, you will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. Here is a man who claims to be a God, but when divine judgment comes, he dies like any other man. We will know there will be the prophet and the antichrist and Satan. And they will come as three, you see. Isn't it funny how, how the world mimics the heavens? <laughs> because Satan knows how brilliant God is. He knows he can't improve, so why wouldn't he copy him? If you knew the most brilliant person who did something, you wouldn't try and improve on it. You'd just say, well, they are the most brilliant person. I'll just do what they do. It's stupid. I can't improve on that. That's what he does. He mimics God all the time and what God is doing. Verse 10, it says, you will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. That, I believe, is a picture of the Antichrist who's going to rise up at the end times. And now, this, the second part of this, from uh, we're going to read about something 
that is really a, a picture of, of Satan. So Ezekiel 28, I'm going to read from 11 to 19. Let me read through it as one jump and then we'll, we'll take it apart and have some fun with this. There is only one person who fits this and uh, that is Satan. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. This is the king, you see, so this is the spiritual being. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountains were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as the guardian cherub. That can only be Satan, can't it? It can't be anyone else. I mean, it's so obvious. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and your corruption, your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you and you have come to a horrible end and you will be no more. Verse 12. Son of man, take a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is Satan. We've said this, we've looked at it. Bright, glorious, the morning star he's described as. Beautiful, a cherub, created, adorable. And then verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and your mountains were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. If this Eden is on earth, when Satan entered Eden, we know that he came in as a serpent, a snake. So is this Eden in heaven or is this Eden on earth? If it's on earth and he walked into Eden like this, the way it says, then there must have been a world before. See, I've got to keep throwing that challenge at you for you to go, okay, I'll have to think about that one. It also says in verse 13, 
it's interesting how you some Bibles just just take whole chunks of thing out or just interpret completely differently. So in this, this is the NIV version here. It talks about your settings and mountains were made of gold on the day you were created, they were prepared. And it seems to be the settings of gold for all these stones. Isn't it interesting the high priest had these stones on his breastplate? And now we've got a picture of Satan. See, he's just copying all the time. It infers here that they were setting gold. But the authorised version has something completely different as you read this. In the authorised version it says, the workmanship of thy tabrets, or tambourines, and of thy pipes were prepared in thee. You go, how do you get those two thoroughly different translations from the same Hebrew? Well, it's possible. And so if you stick with the authorised version, what we see is he had within him the ability to make music and to worship. Actually, pipes and tambourines, they're talking about it was, that's what instruments are. You blow them or you bash them. I mean, I'm sorry about that, but that, that's, that's how crude I am when it comes to instruments. You blow them or bash them. And so he's saying all instruments were inside of you. That's how God made you. So whether he sang and it was so beautiful uh, or made music somehow and it came from him, this is what is inferred here. Someone said this, why should Satan have all the best music? Do you remember that little caption? Yeah. But he does a lot with music, doesn't he? Entices people, seduces people all the time with music. We can be seduced in church by music. Uh, some people have said to me, I only go to church for the worship. What do they mean? They mean I enjoy the music. That's what they mean. Or they go home and say, wasn't it terrible this morning? Uh, you see the power of the music, it's powerful. Satan knows how powerful it is and how it affects people's moods and their feelings and can cause them to do all manner of things. Satan had tremendous musical ability. Maybe he used that to ensnare the people. Maybe he used it to ensnare the race of people that were on earth. Verse 14 says this, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I adorned you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. And just like the covering angels, remember we spoke about that over the ark, he was a covering angel. He walked amongst the fiery stones. Uh, possibly he walked amongst the angels. They were his company, they were the fiery stones. 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Where did that come from? He was perfect and wickedness was found in him. Created a cherub, turned into a rebel, opposing his creator. 
16 to 18. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God. The widespread violence is where he moved around amongst either the people or the angels, seducing them and to doing what he wanted them to do. A seducer. Have you met those people? They move around just saying things. Terrible people, really. Gossiping, just dropping words about things, some truth, some lies, trying to cause trouble. When there is big trouble in churches and there are fractures and it breaks and divides, there are seducers moving amongst the people just moving, doing all sorts of evil. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. I wonder at what point he expelled him from heaven. At the first sign of this, we know that God is patient. We know he lets us get away with stuff, doesn't he, for so long. And then in his mercy, he does something about it. Or to protect others, he does something about it. Ananias and Sapphira, he left them for a season until it got to a pitch where they were going to do more harm than good. And so he dealt with them. And so he deals with Lucifer. Your heart became proud, it says, on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Oh, what a terrible thing. So I threw you to the earth. Remember, Jesus said, I saw him cast out of heaven. I made a spectacle of you before kings. What does that mean? When he threw him out of heaven, were there kings on the earth? Was there a pre-Adamic race of people who had a temple and a mountain, and they knew the angels who walked amongst them, did he cast him out? And the kings of the earth saw him fall? By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated the sanctuaries so I made a fire come out of you, and it consumed you. We come now to something that hasn't happened, but will happen. This is the final part in life. So I made a fire come out of you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. Remember, we will look at him, and we will say, is this the one that caused so much damage in the world? This one is pointing to the future. A judgment that is yet to be fulfilled. Lucifer was responsible for the sanctuary in the pre-Adamic earth. He was in charge of worship. He was a cherub that covered the very throne of God with the other two that Moses made out of hammered gold. He was responsible for music. He was a great artist. 
brilliant, as it were. He was very accomplished. But he rebelled. And in his rebellion, he was cast out of heaven. The root of all conflict, you see, is this rebellion. When Adam and Eve were put into the earth, the rebellion was there in the heavens. Was that fair or unfair? He's always been there, you see. But if they had done what God had said, and they had listened to God, they would have had victory over him all the time. And that's all I can say to you. As we read the word of God and we do what it says, we don't have to be afraid of him. He comes with his deception and his lies and he comes to trick us and he comes to cause us to be in conflict with one another. The rebellion one is, rebellious one is still here doing what he's always done. It's in his nature to be like it. But we can be wise. We can confront him and overpower him, the rebellious one. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for our next lesson in the Spiritual Conflict module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website, at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.